Hi and welcome to the farm. I'm Karcha Williams, the rural mum, and today I'm here speaking with Claire and her kids here on their family farm just out of Geary, New South Wales. Welcome Claire. Hi, thanks for having us. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your family and your farm. Well, um, this is not my daughter. Uh, this, is <laughs> this is my daughter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we've got Lachlan here. Do you want to say hello? Hello. Uh, Lachlan's just in seven. Uh, Lucy is two and a two. half. About to turn three. And she's about to join us as well. <laughs> yes, um, she's wearing clothes. Um, just not that you can see. Oh, thanks for the tissues. Well done. Come over here. Oh, you brought all the tissues. Can I have them, please? Thank you. Okay. Beautiful. Um, I'll give them. <laughs> I'll distribute tissues. Um, and um, Lachlan and Lucy and I are very lucky to have Brendan as our husband, or my husband, and dad. And um, our family farm is a first-generation farm, so we purchased it in May 2012. And uh, we've grown quite considerably since then. Um, but this is where popcorn. we live. We are harvesting popcorn at the moment. So we're irrigators, um, uh, some groundwater, some river water, and uh, some dry land cropping. And we are starting our breeding of an Angus Cow. herd. And up until about two or three years ago, we were mostly livestock trading. Um, so yeah, we um, grow a lot of vegetables. Uh, so sweet corn, adziki beans, um, and canola. canola, lots of seed crops, and it's pretty busy. Um, and wheat. And wheat, that's right. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's us, and we've got some beautiful staff um, who I don't really, they're kind of so much part of what we do that um, I don't really see them as staff if, in a weird kind of way. So um, Matthew, I think he's been with us for about three years, maybe longer. And Rolf, I think, has been here maybe six years. Um, and we've got a couple of contractors that help from time to time. And, um, yeah, it's it's busy. <laughs> Busy's good. Busy, yes, yes. And a great bookkeeper. Uh, yes, helps. so yes, um, I don't do that. Excellent. Excellent. Really? Yes. Really? Excellent. And Claire, what are your... Um, What's your role in the farm and the setup? Well, um, you're talking to um, me at a really in interesting time. Uh, so I've just turned 40, and for me personally, uh, I'm not entirely sure why I'm so driven. I think a lot of women in regional areas um, are either very, very, very happy at home raising children and being in a support role with their husband either in a, a bookkeeping role or sort of being that glue kind of role or um, they're also wanting something a bit more and um, I uh, was very much humbled by my husband a few years ago, Goody <laughs> uh, um who basically said look Claire we've got these really little kids, um, we probably don't need to keep buying farms at the moment whereas for me I was um, hell set on um, purchasing lots and lots and lots of farms and growing the business to a size where um, I'm not entirely sure why but I was just really I, I enjoyed the challenge of expanding so when my husband signaled a couple of years ago after Lucy was born that he really wanted to spend some time with our children um, I was like okay uh, fair enough 
Um, so I exited out of our farm business at a at a day to day kind of level. Um, we've got a beautiful business coach, and every quarter we catch up as a business to look at our um, strategic, financial, and um, productive goals. So I attend those meetings, um, which are half day meetings, and if they have any other sorts of legal issues um, that I can assist with, then obviously I will do that. Um, but more often than not, I'm really not aware of what's happening in the farm anymore. Yeah. And that has been massive. Um, and we're still really adjusting, I think, to that. Huge change. And in, a, in many respects, I think it's one of the reasons that this podcast, I think, is so powerful because... Um, there's no one way to do farming. That's right. Yeah, so it's certainly been a big couple of years, quite a lot of loss and grief. Um, and I think Brendan, to some extent, has certainly felt a bit lonely. Um, uh, but um, I felt like I'd really supported him for over 10 years to um, acquire the farms and... Um, set up systems and secure staff and um, all those sorts of things and if uh, my drive wasn't going to be satisfied on the farms, I really needed to respect Brendan's um, wish to just slow down, so I, I needed to put my energy somewhere else. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Understand that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think a lot of us do, you know, like um, you kind of got to find that, you know, sweet spot mm. and... In many respects, like I had no, because our main income has been from the farm and I've just been working two or three days a week as a solicitor, um, I haven't really ever dared to dream about um, what kind of off-farm income I could generate other than just paying for groceries and things. And um, yeah, I'm like, I could actually uh, potentially uh, contribute to paying off some of the farm debt. Yeah. So that's kind of, I'm now going, oh, right, okay, well, uh, that's, that's fun. Let's see if we can do that. Um, but in the meanwhile, uh, I got a bit distracted by some commercial properties, so I've been buying some commercial properties and doing some small renovations and learning a different asset class. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe repaying the farm debt might have to go on hold for a couple of years until I sort of get that out of my system. When you first started you know, looking at, at property and, and buying up the farm. What was some of the biggest challenges or hurdles that you had to learn and overcome? And how did you do that? Um, look, neither Brendan nor I had undertaken formal um, business training at a tertiary or TAFE level. Um, and in hindsight... Whilst I thought my upbringing was really very normal, and I think it is, um, my family who were in pro-production in the Hunter Valley hadn't really talked about the realities of business, so we didn't really understand cash flow, and um, we also didn't have any debt on our family farm in the Hunter, and because that was a fifth-generation farm. Um, so there were a whole lot of things that... Um, I was blissfully unaware of and so I was mostly focused on the production side um, which I think is a very natural sort of thing to be thinking about. Are you making a birthday cake? Thank you. Somebody's birthday. Okay, you're going to tip it onto the table? 
No? Okay. Um, do you want to leave it there and make another one for me? Okay. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, just literally the things that I thought were important were looking at um, building the cash flow budget, um, figuring out whether the business is going to be profitable or not, um, and using data from New South Wales DPI um, for Lucent, for example, um, or different sorts of financial metrics. And I didn't understand at all um, just the realities of uh, how farms increase in value, um, that the industry that we were entering into was basically just capital. Um, and the business of farming was a completely different business. So, um, and had I realised that we were entering into two separate different types of businesses, um, I think I probably would have gone and get a, got a bit more training. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like we've been just very lucky, I believe, um, that land values have increased, water values have increased. Um, a couple of years where we, I think, might have made $50,000 after paying all of our bills and I'm just thinking like what the you know like what um, you know the things that really have saved us have been able to go back to the bank and say look um, uh, we have been investing all of our surplus cash and time into developing pivots um, building shared silos like we certainly weren't bleeding or consuming a very luxurious life but I just don't think I really had any idea and I'm sure that that naivety and lack of financial literacy um, caused more stress than it really should have and I often find now it's a truck that's a good truck that one it's a good truck that if we had probably done a more detailed or informed business plan and understood what a business coach could do in the 12 months before purchasing the asset, I suspect that we probably would have been um, far more profitable and probably would have been a whole lot less stressful. Um, but, I don't know, I just think yeah. um, that's the things that I really wish that I'd spent time on and it's boring and it certainly is not what I think a lot of young farmers want to be doing, chatting to accountants, lawyers, valuers, um, you know, going and doing some more training, um, reading books, talking to people. I don't think people are really interested in that sort of stuff because they just want to get on the tractor and grow the wheat or, you know, just get started with the chickens or, or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And um, I just don't think people appreciate the definition of insolvency. <laughs> <laughs> um, the realities of bankruptcy and um, how difficult this industry is. I suppose the hurdle that we experienced the most was realising that uh, we had assumed that the business that we had entered into was mostly a production business. Um, and by that I mean everything was focused on you know, the price of fertiliser or the price of diesel or um, availability of seed or um, uh, plant and equipment and 
um, or the, the, the amount of kilos that the livestock are going to be increasing. And, you know, like I remember on a weekly or fortnightly basis, like weighing cattle, you know, um, you know, shudder. But um, it was such a production-focused reality. And it was only later on in the process of really thinking about the business that I realised that we actually had two businesses and I remember Nigel Kieran mentioning this um, at different young farmer Little River Landcare um, groups that he was <laughs> organising at the time, so this is sort of 2013-14, um, that we re were, like farmers effectively ran two businesses, one being the land business or the water business and then um, one was the productive business on top and I remember thinking Oh, it's really interesting. I hadn't really heard of that concept before. And because neither Brendan nor I had had um, formal training at a tertiary level or at a TAFE level in business, um, and I presume Marcus Oldham graduates or um, ag economics graduates would be well versed in this, but um, the realities of owning a piece of capital, maintaining that capital through capital expenditure, and just the realities of valuations and dealing with banks... Um, look, I feel like there needs to be an entire program to train people on how to do that. And I do think that um, what Pip Job and Alex Hicks and now um, the Young Farmer Business Program are doing quite well is actually saying, guys, you know, like there's a fair bit involved in this process. Um, you know, we all think that it's about um, the cattle work the sheep work, the, the shearing, um, the sowing and the harvesting, but in fact it's, it's something that's far more serious than that, and that is um, acquiring the asset, maintaining the asset, um, keeping the asset in its best format, and then um, understanding how that asset can be revalued to enable you to either... Um, invest in lots of infrastructure on farm or maybe scale yeah. and I think I now just sort of shudder at the ignorance and naivety but I suppose that's what happens when you're 28 and you you know just are having a go. Yeah. And it's the difference between working in your business and on your business. Oh very much so and you know um, I have some of the most incredible um, younger farmers so anywhere between the ages of 28 and, say, 50, <laughs> um, who are either on, um, have come from a family farm or they might be from a completely other industry and wanting to enter into agriculture. And they often really are now far more wise than what we were. So I think, I think things have changed quite dramatically since we kicked off. Um, but as we were chatting earlier, I am wondering... Um, if some of the hurdles that Brendan and I navigated in the last decade, we probably had softer landings than possibly what the next decade has coming for um, similar sorts of younger farmers. Um, you know, like interest rates going up, uh, commodity prices being largely uncertain. Um, I mean, I know commodity prices are always uncertain, but... There just sort of seems to be an element of genuine, look, the spread is going to be a lot bigger than yep. what it could have been. Um, 
And the realities of climate change actually not being something that might happen but we're living in. Um, and then the bank's response to those sorts of challenges, I kind of wonder if the younger farmers coming in and growing are going to have... Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of worry a little bit. Um, but also the bravado um, and blissful ignorance of youth is probably what enables people to enter into agriculture anyway. Yeah. So you kind of want to shield them and enable them to kind of learn and grow and make mistakes, but also you kind of want to go, hey, uh, when you get to this left and right turn, please turn left and then do a U-turn and go right back. <laughs> but, you know, you just, um, A, no one likes unsolicited advice and B, um, uh, sometimes the most incredible asset that we have is our knowledge and often wisdom comes from just experience and you never ever learn better than when you've had a mistake no and you never listen better than when it's your mistake (laughs) uh yeah 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 uh that seed crop that um uh in our first year where we uh had germination at 93.5 and then we our contract said that we'd only be paid at a seed value at 95 percent germination um and realising the difference between a seed price and a feed price, something like $4,000 a tonne difference, and then learning later on through um, the industry grapevine that that seed company just um, uh, blended other seed that was 97% germ to lift ours from 93 to 5. So they made you know an enormous amount of money. And we lost $400,000 in that crop in our first very year. And I just think, um, I, that experience for me um, meant that uh, A, we'll never trust like we did trust, and B, um, on our read contracts very, very, very carefully, and we'll never, ever be in that situation again. And the person that did that, um, I will watch him throughout his entire career and um, I'll always tell people what happened. And I just think how interesting it was that um, these guys making a really small profit of $400,000 or whatever it was, I just think how naive and stupid that decision was at a corporate level because we'll never grow with those guys ever again. And um, as we've grown... And we will continue to grow. I just think it was such a good lesson for me that agriculture is a tiny sector, and um, be careful where you shit because everyone uh, knows everyone. Yeah, everyone knows everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I mean, in the scale of like that size business, four hundred thousand isn't very much. And I just remember thinking that would have just been so that that particular fellow's um, that financial year he would have made his budget, and he probably would have been given another thirty or forty thousand dollars in his personal bonus, and I'm thinking... Mm, was it worth it? Was it worth it, mm. you know? Um, and, yeah, but anyway, I think they're the sorts of learnings that I don't think anyone can really sort of say, hey, read this book and you'll get this learning. Yeah. Or maybe there are books out there. Not that I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> if you've um, got a book like that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help a girl out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it was such a great... Um, it was a really good learning that... Um, Honesty, transparency, authenticity and values and the fact that in agriculture it is a long-term business relationship Mm -hmm. and um, 
it really was a good learning experience for us because during the most recent drought, and you guys might be similar because um, you had access to some water, but I felt sick. Like I, we had designed a business based on when everyone else was dry that we would have a little bit of water not all of our water but a little bit of water and that we would probably be able to keep trading through and hopefully um maintain some seed stock or breeding stock or whatever and but I was not prepared at all for just that three or four years of brown um and everyone else really not going well and us having a little bit of green in our paddocks yeah I don't know if you felt a bit sick but I found that the whole, I've been so clever to think about this business, uh, but then it kind of worked too well yeah. in a weird kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I've since learned that agriculture is actually the only time that some farmers make money is when other farmers don't do so well. Yeah. And I grew up with potatoes and, you know, when it was flooding in somewhere, then our potato price was really good. But then when um, we were hit by floods in Maitland, the other people's potatoes were really well. And, I think commodity prices and commodity markets are based just on supply and demand. And I think that's also thinking about where you've got to go into the mindset of niching down into this is what we are doing, this is what we have planned for, and try and bring in your perspective because otherwise the pressure the pressure on you is enough during the drought, oh. let alone to open it up to what others are doing and what others are thinking, unless it's very poignant into helping each other out and that's I think you get that feeling because you want to help out you want to you want to help someone but in the same time you don't want it to land in a like a big boisterous <laughs> type of like here let me help you like it's nothing like that but there's you can say like, oh, all I want to do is help but I don't think it'll land well at the moment. So it's picking your time and, and reeling everything back in to a time where you can open back up to others. Yeah. Um, that's that's a hard line to walk. Very much so. But I think um, that example of being treated so poorly by that seed company in Toowoomba um, in 2013 um, taught me that there wouldn't have been a worse time for that to have hit us. So we'd only just purchased the farm in May. You know, we'd harvested it in March, April, and we had we were kind of like sweating on that income coming in. We just paid all the stamp duty. Um, so as a first-generation farmer, um, we didn't have the intergenerational stamp duty exemptions. So um, we had to pay the full ad valorem. And I think the farm was about two point. Four million. I can't remember the stamp duty that we paid, but it, I think it was around 130 or 140,000. Um, and then you have to pay for all of the crop going in. Um, so there might have been another two or three, four hundred thousand um, dollars. The bank would only give us a small seventy-five thousand dollar overdraft. And so it was kind of like that year where everything went out, and uh, the interest bills were. 12,000 or I don't know I was just like insane yeah. and I remember going well this has been fun uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though the cash flow budget was like really well researched by someone like me using my spreadsheets I don't think the day-to-day -day realities of cash flow kind of hit and so when that decision to pay us a feed price versus the seed price 
and the just the devastation that that caused us at a personal level when the drought happened we actually reached out to a number of people that had either supplied us with trading animals or were people who had really helped us out over the previous eight years and we said do you mind if you are going to sell any of your animals of any kind um, please let us buy them and and it, and you can guide us on which bulls you want and then when this drought breaks we'll give you back your animals yeah um, and we agreed on prices and stuff like that and um, Got it written down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Write it down. Yeah, yeah. Write it down. Write it, write it. Write it. Um, and it some, some of it, I mean, this is certainly not legal advice, but some of it was just as simple as, look, here's an email. You know, like sometimes, yeah. and obviously depending on who you're dealing with. But um, And then when the drought broke and people had feed again and they came with their um, B-doubles to come and collect their animals again and that they could continue on with that breeding stock, I just remember thinking... And that was all Brendan's idea. Um, I just remember thinking, yep, like, A, you feel really good. Yep. B, we made a little bit of money. C, they made a little bit of money. And the relationship with those families yep. for here and after, yep. and I'm sure we'll hit the skids at some stage and we may need to do the same mm -hmm. um, with our animals or, or whatever the case is. But I think the surprise, to answer your question, in terms of agriculture is... Um, it's certainly no longer a handshake type of business because of the complexities of the business that we're in, but the human relationships and doing what you say you're going to do and just being kind and completely transparent, I think that values piece is critical. And for me, it's probably where the corporates are going to fail. Um, and I think we already see and we've got some in our district, like people who, like, trade hay in the middle of drought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how's that short-term profiteering going? You know, like, what the fuck? Like, anyway, I just sit there and go, everyone's going to completely love you for the rest of your life. Like, why would, you know, it just... Sometimes it's oh. setting up I hope you guys don't circle. do. I don't know. Uh, I'm not. Sometimes <laughs> it's setting up that circle, though, to have that cash flow so that you can still show that money's going out but money's coming in. So you sometimes you'll see um, people will sell their hay during the drought because they can buy it in for less, at a lesser quality, but it's still a rotation of... Of a, of a money string. So money's going out, money's coming in. Yeah. So we're selling, but we're buying. I suppose what I'm saying is if you're an accountant or you are a wool grower or yeah. an oyster farmer or, like, it doesn't really matter who you are, but let's imagine that you genuinely don't grow your own hay yeah. and all you're doing is going to somewhere in South Australia and Victoria mm. and trucking in cheap hay uh, you know, we, without any guarantee of quality, yeah. and then just no, trucking it again, and yeah. then just and the, the hay actually doesn't even go to your farm. It, you're just really coordinating at a logistics level. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm yeah. not talking. Yeah, prices. correct, yeah. correct. It's just putting. It's va yeah. basically just putting a margin. Yeah, um, and that that level of profiteering. I think um, it's been interesting to watch uh, that practice um, being noted. Mm. Yeah. And and people will never forget. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I suppose that's the surprise. Sometimes we can have short memories in other in some areas, and we can be very forgiving in some areas. Yeah. But other things we're like noted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people don't say much. Like I think that's the beautiful thing that I've learned, uh, which is quite different to law, is um, when people do say something, it, it says a lot, and people don't say a lot most of the time. Yeah. But they're always watching. Yeah, always, always watching. (laughs) Um, Yeah, which is which is kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Um, But it certainly is um, the rules of the game, which are never written down. (laughs) uh, Certainly. We could have a head start if they were written. (laughs) (laughs) But also things like it's kind of like um, indigenous families or. other sorts of cultures where the law, L-O-R-E, of a family and community are handed down through rituals, for example, um, I think some of the unspoken ground rules of the agricultural sector in New South Wales or in the Central West or Australia or whatever the nuanced sort of culture is... um, yeah, there is a really easy way to learn it, and that's just to sort of um, attend lots of functions and enjoy speaking to people and just do the right thing. And most of the time, over conversations at the back of the ute or um, an afternoon tea or at a bushfire or whatever, like wherever you are, you'll eventually, over a 10 or 15 year period, pick it up. Um, and those guys, and especially Ned, for example, who were aged sort of 14, 15 and might have been involved in that, have a head start in many respects. So by the time they're 30, they understand the rules of the game, but women who join um, their husbands if they've married into a farm, or if you're like Brendan and I where you um, have acquired the farm when you were 28, 29, uh, I'm only now really understanding the rules of the game at 40. Yeah. yeah, I think I've still got my masters and PhD to go. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first move there, you're like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm the apprentice. <laughs> yeah. I'm the apprentice, and I've got to look at it from that." And sometimes you've got to be like, "Wheel it back. Explain that to me, because <laughs> I don't understand how that works." And there's a lot of yeah. like, when you get to a certain age or into a certain time frame, you've been in the game. There's a lot of assumptions of you know how to do it. It's like I turned up to one of my first cattle events, sheep background, no cattle, and I just got handed these two bulls to hold in an arena. And I was like, never let let a bull, never broken a bull in, but I've turned up with Ned and people have just given me these bulls. And I'm standing there going, don't move, don't move. (laughs) So there's a lot of assumed knowledge as well. Like that was 10 years ago, but at the time, like that was... Yeah, like you don't, there's a lot of assumed knowledge and there's a lot that you've got to learn. So definitely starting at that apprentice apprentice sort of mindset, when you, yeah. whether you marry in or whether you, whether you buy your own farm and you've got to start from there. Um, I remember when Tony Abbott was elected as Prime Minister a few years ago and he did his Tony Abbott listening tour of the nation. So his first hundred days of office were to just listen. So he went around the nation and um, love him or loathe him, I thought it was a really cool thing to basically say he just was really keen, whether he did it or not, I don't know, but um, 
what a lovely concept. And I feel like if um, I have a daughter uh, who decides to stay in a rural area, like we do have a daughter, but if she elects to stay in a rural area, I'll certainly be saying, look, for the first five to ten years, um, uh, probably listen more than you talk. Which is a hard thing to do. Oh, there you go. I failed miserably. So, yeah, that's a hurdle. That's a hurdle. That's another hurdle. <laughs> but, I mean, um, and be very careful who you trust. Um, I certainly think that the Trojan horse and a lot of those old parables around, um, like, the Peloponnesian Wall, War um, and uh, maritime and um, military strategy and these wonderful books from Roman times which talk about trust and how people trick people. I really think you need to be very careful in social circles and business circles out here because the person who you think might be um, the most welcoming and kind and open and trusting person ends up just being the district gossip. And um, if you are going through a time of... um, losing children through miscarriage, um, infertility, um, maybe you're having a really rough time in your marriage or, um, I don't know, just life might be just throwing you a turd uh, and you accidentally, like, release your heart and talk to someone and then you realise 12 months or two years later that that person just is a complete gossip. I just think that's probably one of the things that I just did not realise and that's probably just comes back to that whole um, uh, measure twice, cut once philosophy. You know, because um, once it's out, you can't get it back. Sometimes that's when you need to reach out for external help, or uh, whether it's a, a free hotline, or whether you find yourself someone else that you can talk to in confidence. Yeah. Um, which you know we don't always have access to being rural or, or finding the right person that fits with you. But yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely yeah not nice when you sit down and, and let your heart go and then find out it's it hasn't landed in the best place. Yeah. So um, yeah, but there are some incredible like the flip side of realizing that there are just some absolute bitches out there who um, uh, take absolute glee and joy in destroying anyone who is trying to have a red hot go um i think for every um one of those there's always two amazing gems of women and families who are just wonderful but it does take a while to kind of figure out who they are so yeah um just be careful who's wearing country road <laughs> sometimes they are from the country and sometimes they just like to look uh, like a fashion model um, and I think yeah I don't know and I think also the background of being a solicitor means that when people talk to you about things um, it's just a given that you just don't say it to anyone yeah. not even my husband yeah. you know like and I I suppose I probably um, just had no idea that gossip is a commodity in its own right out here and uh, I just find it anyway, says so much more about someone else when they're talking about someone 
I far prefer to talk about stock markets, commodity yeah. markets, weather, <laughs> gardening, um, children, you know, yeah. like, yeah, than talking about another woman. Stick to safe topics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I now have no, no qualms in the middle of a chat with women when they're talking about someone saying, hey, um, I don't do gossip. Um, do you mind if we just move on? Because, um, yeah, I don't think this is cool. And people often are a bit shocked. I'm just like, well... Like, not your news to share. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, um, if we want to talk about that person, well, let's do that, but let's invite them here so we can ask them directly. <laughs> oh, you don't want to do that? Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, what is the best piece of advice you were given either before or after moving to the farm that's really resonated with you? It's a really hard one, um, and I'm sure that there are others, but the one that pops to my mind at the moment and also pops to my mind from time to time is my mum. Uh, so we've exchanged contracts. Um, so February 2012, exchange contracts. The vendor wanted a um, longer settlement term to harvest some crops, and that's fine. And I realised that we're about $90,000 short in cash to settle, about like two months beforehand. And so we're selling houses and, you know, like we're, we're really like getting stuck into getting ready to buy this farm. And I call my mum and dad. Mum and dad are, um, they don't holiday very often, very hardworking farmers, but on this particular time they were walking in Italy. And I was like, mum, look, I, I, can I please get a loan? And she's like, no, um, you know, like you guys are stupid enough to um, like, we've all said to you, borrowing 75% is ridiculous. Um, and we've genuinely, and everyone had said, look, this is stupid. You really shouldn't do this. And uh, I was like, okay, well, thanks, mum. I knew we were on our own, but I now know we are very much on our own. And Enjoy your walk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you when you get back. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they've always been like that, which has been, I think, a very good quality. But it met, made me realise that we were very much on our own. So I then called the vendor, who happened to be a barrister, and um, said, do you mind if I um, talk to you about some vendor finance? And, like, I'm, I'm mortified at this point, but I'm thinking, well, we've paid the deposit. Um, we're not going to lose our $240,000 deposit plus the stamp duty. Um, and we're just like, failure is not an option. And so it went down and he was like, sure, I'll give you some vendor finance. Um, I think it was like either eight or 10% or something. And I was like, like that is, we just, we just like the cash flow budget does not allow that. Okay. No, can't do that. Right. I call my grandma and she's like, sorry, I wish I could, but if I did it for you, I have to do it for the other nine of you. So no. And I was like, they're cool. Like, you know. Yep. Okay, uh, Claire, what are we going to do? Um, and I think I ended up going back to the bank and just saying, rightio, um, we're going to have to borrow a bit more. And the bank's like, you're kind of at your limit. I'm like, yep, I understand that, but here's my 10-point plan on how to get out. If, if something goes wrong, this is what we're going to do. And one of them was chopping wood. We'll do anything. And they were like, oh, this is that. And, like, and they were selling you know, items of equipment and, you know, like, um, a few bits and pieces. And, um, so they said, okay, we'll, we'll kind of give you that balance, but we want it back within 12 months. And I was like, phew, okay. Um, but the piece of advice that during that time of trying to find those last scraps of money to get over the line 
um, my mum had said to me, well, look, the location that you've bought the farm is, is a good one and you'll be easily able to sell it if it doesn't go well. And I remember thinking at the time, like it was like a smack to the face, um, but I remember thinking, oh yeah, okay, well, I suppose if this experiment doesn't go well, um, you know, we'll hopefully get our money back, you know. And I remember thinking at the time, actually, that's really clever advice. And over the years, as we make decisions to buy another farm or as we decide to enter into another lease or if we go and, um, you know, we just put in some um, new silos and they were just eye-wateringly expensive and different things. It was like, well, fortune favours the brave, but um, you always have it to sell. And I remember thinking, okay, um, yeah, and and I suppose that sort of from a first-generation perspective meant that um, we always had a plan B. And I just think it doesn't really matter if you're inheriting a farm and you have to um, find some cash to pay someone out um, or whatever it is. But, yeah, the location of where you are, if it's the farm or whatever you're buying, um, can you sell it? And um, so having a beautiful wardrobe of clothes or um, having an immaculate house which is recently renovated or something where you can't pick it up and sell it. I suppose that has been a really helpful thing for me um, and as much as I'd love to renovate the house and all those <laughs> sorts of things, I've just reminded myself that we're not at that stage yet. Yeah, so when the farm needs an extra piece of machinery or something like that, it also makes that a bit easier, if you, particularly if you are doing the books and haven't got any financial training or anything behind you, it's like, okay, we can sell it. So while it adds a little bit of stress to yourself, like, we can sell it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think the bank knows that. So your equity partner um, is fully aware and that's why they will only provide equity to a certain point, they'll shade it so that they um, always are guaranteed to get their money back plus interest and economic costs. But I think it's also a really healthy mindset to have, which is, um, yeah, if we're doing something different or we're expanding or growing or doing whatever it is, um, we're not not going to do it because it could fail. Yeah. We're going to do it because we think it's going to work and in the event it doesn't, well, we're not going to lose a limb or no one's going to die um it's just going to probably be a bruised ego yeah and I think then the coming decade for a lot of my clients and for us here at Booth Ag um I think it's so critical to go okay I think we can do this back ourselves and you know what is the plan b and just do it and then if it doesn't work well at least you tried. Yep. And I think there's going to be so many more opportunities in this decade coming um, than there probably were in the previous decade. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you have to I think that's where that saying comes in, do you have debt or are you in debt? <laughs> yeah. and, and where do you feel on that scale? I think that's sort of where we're sinking towards the, yeah. in the conversation as well. 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, like there was a fellow in my Nuffield scholarship that um, rattled that off and initially I hadn't heard it. It was Brendan that heard mm. it from this fellow and I wish I could reveal who told it to me but I, you know, every time that we would meet with someone we promised 
um, that would not reveal their identity. Um, but it was fascinating to understand that certain families had rules, policies, guidelines in relation to how they did death. And that wonderful difference between having it and obtaining that debt and being a debt that you could therefore sell or get rid of rather than being in a state of debt and not controlling it. Um, yeah, it was a fascinating, it was a really pivotal change point for us because it meant that we weren't a failure, that we're in debt. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I think compared to a lot of other um, families that had no debt, and that was then I was able to verify that when looking at ABEAR's data, which um, I only looked at it last week when I was preparing for a presentation I did on Friday down at Marimbula, and there is less than 4% of Australian family farms that have got debt of 60% or more. So that means they've got 40% equity, 60% debt. And out of all of them, and I remember thinking, who on earth can buy a $10 million farm, right, and have a $4 million deposit plus a stamp duty? Like, hello! <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what the data is saying, right? Is that um, if you're a first generation or you are um, paying out siblings as part of a succession plan, that more often than not, um, you're going to have at least 60% equity and 40% debt. But more often than not, it was 75% equity and 25% debt. And... I just found it like fascinating and I understand why people don't have debt like it's you know pretty stressful sometimes um but like when you are just beginning you don't have any choice yeah um so the best piece of advice was yes little miss Caroline do it and don't worry about it because you can always sell it. <laughs> <laughs> have a go. Because you, you never have know. You know, like, you never know what's going to happen after you take that leap of faith. And we've got a couple of mates um, who have wanted to do um, buy into farming or, or, and for whatever reason haven't. And um, I just think, oh, just, just start somewhere. It doesn't matter how big. It doesn't need to be fancy. You know, just start. You know, and when you start... It, you go, oh, it's not that hard. I can get. do this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is manageable. I can do this, yeah. yeah. So some of the tips that I've learnt from other people have been just to have really low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I just remember going, but how do you do it? And they're just like, oh, I don't know. We just sort of really, uh, sometimes the kitchen is really dirty. Yeah. Or sometimes the garden has gone to complete pop. You can't um, do it all. Pick what you want to do yeah yeah Yeah. um but I think tips for me have always been I've had a couple of clients lose young children you know um a a little boy who was eight and then a little child that was three in um accidents on farms so for me safety has always been paramount so one of the best things we ever did was put in a pool fence um around the front so that just in that time frame that all of the gates into the yard so like a lot of family farms our workshop and and the main sort of road into the farm 
is really close to the, the house. So making sure that the, the, the yard is kid-proof um, and also means it's small dog-proof as well, yeah. which is helpful, and chook-proof. Um, but I think Brendan has shown me that um, children really love being in a header or they love being in a tractor and they love being um, in the ute and they love being taken along, um, not for eight hours, <laughs> um, so, it's but, not many you have the attention span for that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah for three or four hours, like uh, with lots of food. So one of the tips would yeah. be yes, um, go and find an enormous lunchbox and put more food than <laughs> they need in it, and um, lots of water and sunscreen and hats and stuff. Um, but I don't know if it's a tip or not, but I have this sense that family farming is changing and we're seeing that evolve as you and I are growing up as mums and that is that um, income from off-farm can be helpful for a range of reasons and so for us um, the ability to have off-farm income ticks lots of serviceability boxes so when the next farm comes up that might be 10 million dollars or more the fact that we've got some off-farm income in addition to the farm income means that um, A, we'll get the loan, B, the cost of the loan will be a bit cheaper and um, there's a whole range of reasons why off-farm income is, is critical but for me I really am hoping that being a mum that is involved in the farm from time to time and then being involved in off-farm um, businesses off-farm from time to time means that the children understand that the traditional model um, is one model and it's okay to just live life how you want to live it. And I think um, I really want mums to understand that just because your neighbours aren't doing something or just because your mother-in-law or your grandmother-in-law or whatever, just because what you want to do isn't what everyone else is doing, it's kind of not a reason not to do it. Yeah. And for me, um, I was a very slow learner to understand I had very little self-esteem and I had very low levels of self-confidence. Um, and another rural mum had done this course called Core Confidence and uh, it's run by two chartered accountants in Sydney. It's for women who are aged between, say, 25 to 45. And it's a short eight-week course, three hours a week. It's all online. And ultimately that course for me would single-handedly be one of the most incredible tips I've been given as a rural mum because over the space of eight weeks you had to have a small act of confidence each week and then you had to identify what a big act of confidence was going to be and for some people it was to try and navigate um, a pay rise, someone wanted a promotion, some people wanted to set up their own side hustle some people wanted to have go from being an employee to opening their own business, which was me. Um, some people um, were on farms, um, and but so it was from all across Australia, the US, and New Zealand. And so a lot of these women were people that I had no idea about, and there were only like a smattering handful of mums that were on farm that um, were connected to family farms. But ultimately, the same things happened, which was, you know, like trying to navigate, well, I, I need to be able to have two weeks of annual leave a year, I really want to spend time with my husband, or all the sorts of challenges that we have on family farms, um, 
would happen with other women in other sorts of industries. So it didn't really matter that they weren't. But that course fundamentally showed me that I had permission to do what I wanted to do. And the course designers are very clever because you get to do the course twice in two years. So the first time you go, it, you kind of, I think it kind of might, might open the fruit um, cake tin to say that, yes, you do have a problem with um, self-confidence and yes, you're entitled to do something. And then when you do the course again, within that two-year period, you're like, oh, how do I do this? Let's get into it. Right, let's get stuck in. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, you know, like tap up to them because it's really clever. Um, but that course, I think, really enabled me to go, well, I want to be a great mum. I want to be a fantastic wife. I want to support the farm. And the farm is really the priority. Um, and I want to be a great daughter and I want to be a fantastic friend and I want to have a hopefully a nice garden and I you know, want to have a clean house and all those things, right? But at, at the other level, I also wanted to know that I was allowed to do something just for me. And it didn't need to be five days a week and it doesn't need to earn, you know, lots of money. And for me, that has been a huge changing point and um, I think as a mum, it's made me a lot happier. And even though Brendo has probably, is missing his right-hand woman, I was effectively his secretary for 10 years, um, I think it's probably been good for him to learn more computer skills and spend more time with the banks and doing a lot more of the financial stuff. And, and we've been you know, really grateful to have a bookkeeper who takes over a lot of the things that I used to be doing. And um, I now have the absolute privilege of taking the children into Dubbo um, going to work and then coming home again and um, having a conversation with Brendan and saying, well, how, how was your day and how was my day? And it's such a wonderful, equal feeling. Um, yeah, and I really am grateful for that course. So, yeah, I hope that's a good tip. Not just sitting at the dinner table going, how was your day? And then making mental notes or actually writing notes, being like, okay, I need to follow up with that. Okay, I need to do that. Like, you're able to sort of switch off a little bit in a way. Very much so. I mean, I'm, I'm still very much like people, clients or will say, oh, what's happening on the farm or whatever. And, I, you know, I really don't have a great idea anymore, which is, I find quite sad. But um, I also think that the CEO of an organisation... Um, which is um, people who are running farms, um, they send their own emails and they have got man methods of chasing up their to-do lists and if they are successful at managing their time and running their administrative tasks, then they then become really successful CEOs. And I think there's no difference between that person and someone who's running a farm business. And, um, yeah, and if people want to bring someone in to help them at an administrative level, great. If they want that person to be their wife or husband, great. But um, I just found it incredible that that was just the unspoken expectation. Yeah. You know, and, and not from a um, menacing or entitled or mean sort of place, but it's just sort of what was done and expected and that's just how it is and I was just like, 
Mm-hmm. What about me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, I, I, there's been a huge amount of divorces around our district over the last five years, and that really put the wind up me because I was thinking, well, what's the difference between what's happened to their family and what's in our family? And we really don't want to get divorced. I love Brendo. And um, one of my personal goals is to make his favourite cake on his 83rd birthday, which is a white chocolate mud cake. And um, uh, so I really want to be that person that goes through the ups and downs of marriage. Um, And I just think, I hope other rural mums understand that if it isn't lighting your fire doesn't have to be permanently like I'm sure I'm going to be back in value adding some type of product marketing doing something you know but at the moment uh, with young kids it's just a bit easier yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a bit of a failure admitting that but no. it's also good just to be honest yeah. Yeah. that's reality that's where we are yeah yeah and, and I just have hats off to a lot of other women who can be um, taking their children on farms doing some of the physical farm work and the, the other um, financial work and really enjoying m- melding their children in that. I think, I wish I could be that woman. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, absolutely. But also I think too many people can, um, like we've got fantastic staff, right? And I just think, well, how many people should be involved at a management level, mm-hmm. and I just think, well, if you're not adding value or there's someone else who's better at the job than you, and like Matt, for example, for me, I'm like, look, you're heaps better at this than me. You know? um, we certainly don't need three people making decisions. Yeah. And having a non-family member as part of the team um, working with a married couple, I reckon would be really hard yeah. because you're going to have those little marriage tiffs that come in and go out and whatever, and I just think, well, that's not fair on him either, you know. So. The reporting lanes need to be very clear. Yeah. I don't know how other... I'd, I'd be interested to find out how other married couples don't have yelling matches in front of their employees. Maybe we could ask that in the comment section below. Give us your tips of how you don't do that. <laughs> My closing comments would be that at the age of 40... Uh, we are only 20 years away from being 60 and when we are 60 um, our son Lockie will be at the same age that we were when we started our farming journey and we have single-handedly felt that the ability to run our own race and not have to seek permission whilst it's been scary and very lonely the positives have been that we've been able to back ourselves and pivot really quickly so we've been light on our feet nimble being able to react to market opportunities trading opportunities um, farm purchase opportunities lease opportunities um, and we also really want to make sure that that nimbleness and that ability to make management decisions alone um, needs to be on offer to our children at a young age, um, so before children come, so similar to what you and I are yelling about. Um, 
So we have got a fixed retirement date for both Brandon and I, and I've hardwired it into some of our trust documents um, because um, I think the thing that we know is um, people often change their mind when it comes to succession. Yes. And I think, oh well, they're intelligent people who are very good people and they've changed their mind, so I wonder if I'll do the same thing. Um, because so much of our identity is linked to what we do when we're on family farms that I can see how um, alluring it would be just to say, oh, look, I know we were going to hand the reins over when you were 26, 27, but look, we're in the middle of a drought or we're just not ready because our super fund doesn't have enough money or look, we're, just, we're, we're, we're still young enough, we might just sort of keep going. No, we're going to have a very, um, very fine line and from the age of oh, probably soon, we'll start to be chatting to both of the children about um, if they want to... Um, return to the farm as the second generation um, what they need to do they need to finish year 12 um, they need to go and um, have some type of um, tertiary education whether that's a trade or uni and um, we will certainly pay for their schooling up to year 12 they can pay for their own tertiary education with HEX um, and they need to go and work for someone else before they come home to us um, but they, they are absolutely guaranteed that if they decide to come home after a few things that they have that privilege of autonomously making their own decisions. And I think that our generation really needs to challenge ourselves, irrespective of whether succession has started or finished with our parents or grandparents, um, that the key to successful succession is that it is very much known and that there's it's like an unspoken ground rule everyone understands what's happening and therefore there's no doubt there's no anxiety um, there's no surprises and there's no expectations and so what I'm seeing at the moment um, which I find fascinating is um, no one's really spoken about succession and someone comes home they've been home for a couple of years they've still not spoken about succession and then the relationships, understandably, between the daughters-in-law and the mothers-in-law or the parents-in-law or whatever start to break down because of natural anxieties. Um, I just think, well, um, why is it that our generation aren't being very clear with themselves around how they're going to retire and what that looks like? Because we can absolutely do that. And we understand that... Um, it's just an estimate in terms of money but and yes you need to be able to have a few little special things in there just in case there's um, an ex-nuptial child of one of your children um, like they've had a one night stand and there's been an interesting child um, arise and that creates um, child support issues or Maybe there's been an unexpected divorce at a really young age of our children, or like there'll be certain little asset protection things that will always demand a change to any plan. Yeah. Hello. Hello. You're just waking up. Oh. You've done so well, Dylan. But I think um, that would be probably my only closing comment would be um, succession. It's never, never too um, early to start, and I hope people are trying. Um, and, and it's okay to try and fail and then just try again. So I hope that's been Sometimes helpful. it's about the timing. Yes, yes. Well, it just at least even having the conversation between Brendan and I, like it was actually quite hard. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>
then you add a generation in there. I know, I know, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's a good conversation because it means that the conversation once yeah. a year just you just review it and say, yep, yep, yep. Ned and I have done similar things. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really important. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for having me. You're thank you very much for joining me, Claire. Pleasure. Yeah. Anytime. Beautiful. So that ends today's interview. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you learnt some tips and tricks and found it very informative. We've had a lovely day out here on the farm. Thank you very much for having us. Pleasure. Thanks. And we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you.